Um, thanks for praying for me, Brendo. I really do appreciate that. Um, it has been, yeah, it's been a great week studying this text, and I'm looking forward to unpacking it with you this morning. So I just want to extend my welcome to you as well. Um, as Brendo said, I'm a pastoral intern here at Sovereign Grace, and so I just want to manage your expectations around, you know, the next 30 or 30 or so minutes. Uh, no, it is. It's a it's a privilege to to open up this word um, and, and to teach it, and so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, now, uh, just I guess by way of sort of um, context, over the last uh, probably a m- couple of months, we've been looking at the book of Colossians. Um, and the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the supremacy of Christ in uh, parenting, uh, the supremacy of Christ in marriage. And today, we're actually going to be looking at the supremacy of Christ in work. So if you're wanting to take notes, you can put that as a title uh, for today's sermon. Uh, I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to spend some time praying And we'll get stuck in. So we're going to be reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 22, uh, through to Colossians 4, verse 1. Chapter 3, 22, through to 4, verse 1. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, it's wonderful to gather this morning in worship of you, Lord. Uh, We give thanks that it's your Son that unites us as a church family. Uh, We give thanks that it's your Son that unites us with you, Lord, puts us right before your eyes, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning as we study this text, that we would be reminded again of your Son's supremacy, Christ's supremacy in all that we do, Lord. And so I pray for clarity, help us to hear and to listen, and we pray above all that your name will be glorified. Amen. Um, so, uh, as Brendo mentioned, um, I, I don't work for the church, I actually work a, you know, a full-time job as a school teacher. Um, I am taking long service leave uh, and going to be doing some work here at Sovereign Grace Barunga. Um, but it's interesting, actually, at the moment, uh, in the context of my work, um, Year 12s are sort of finishing up their last few weeks of their schooling. Uh, Well, actually, um, last week was the last week of Year 12 for many schools. We've got one more week to go at my school. Um, And uh, and we've had, like, you know, farewells and celebrations and whatnot. And interesting, one of the questions that sort of pops up, as you can imagine, in those last few weeks, as you're sort of saying goodbye to those Year 12s and whatnot, is, oh, what are you going to be doing next year? You know, what what are you hoping to do for work? Um, that's sort of often the question that's asked. And you get all sorts of different answers and, um, you know, they've got different plans. All those gap year plans probably aren't, aren't quite what they were uh, now with the current pandemic going on. But um, what we see is we've got students thinking about what is the future that they would like to make of the work that they do. And um, I actually sat down with one of the students in my pastoral care group because he needed some help with just working out what courses he might want to study. And we looked at some of the universities. 
And uh, as we were looking at some of the universities, it was interesting to note some of their sort of marketing campaigns. And I'm going to just read out a few now just to, you know, give you a sense of what, what some of these uh, marketing campaigns involve. Um, Western City University, their kind of pitch to the next generation of workers is discover your unlimited. Australian Catholic University, their pitch is it's your future, make an impact. Uh, Victoria University, build your block, build your future. UNSW, bring your difference. Macquarie University, probably my favourite, you to the power of us. So, I mean, I read these out not actually to, you know, uh, discredit the institutions. Like in a, in a wonderful twist of irony, actually, one of those institutions pays part of my bills. Um, my wife works for one of them, so uh, I'm not saying that to discredit them. I actually sort of uh, wanted to read them out because I think um, it raises the question, what does these slogans say about the culture, our culture's view of work? You know, what, are these, what do they say? What sort of a mindset is being instilled in the next generation of workers with regards to the purpose and the objective of work. I remember for me, when I finished school, I lasted about three weeks at university, uh, and then I ended up deferring or leaving. I just couldn't, couldn't handle it. And I actually took up a job uh, in a plant nursery. And uh, I spent eight hours a day, rain, hail or shine, standing in a field pulling out weeds from pot plants. It was some of the most boring, mundane, Literally back-breaking work. Like you would literally, you were this, you just do this. You stand up, and the boss would look at you, and you'd just do that all day. You know, rain, hail, or shine. And um, it wasn't exactly the you to the power of us experience that perhaps I was, you know, I'd hoped for. Um, because it seems that our culture, on a broad scale, promotes the idea that work is fundamentally about you. I believe as we study this text this morning, the book of Colossians points, us, uh, points out to us actually that work is in fact about Christ and his supremacy over all that we do. My hope today as we study this text is that we will see that regardless of the work we do, be it exciting and stimulating, mundane or boring, simple or complex, paid or unpaid, whether it's caring for your children, balancing a spreadsheet, building a house, Managing a chronic illness, whatever it is, as Christians who profess Christ as supremacy in all things, then the work we do must be for him. I guess that's the sort of the main point of this message, if you wanted to make note of that. It's if Christ is supreme in all things, then the work we do must be for him. Now, as we study the book of Colossians, as I've said, the theme has continued to point us to the supremacy of Christ. In uh, Colossians chapter 1, just to kind of give us a sense of Christ's supremacy, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent or supreme. Christ is supreme in all things. 
And so it's through this lens that we must view our work. And yet, we've just read about slaves and masters. And I wonder if you're thinking, well, what's the link there? Slaves and masters and the work that we do today. If you're like me, you probably actually wince a little bit even at reading you know, the idea of slavery or slaves in the Bible, trying to make sense of it for our own context today. Because we immediately think of the modern African slave trade, which was disgustingly based on race, kidnapping and lifelong bondage. But as we read this text, it's important that we realise that the context, the situation of slaves in the first century that Paul was addressing was not, a, was not identical to that which probably comes to mind with the African slave trade. Paul makes it clear that there is a characteristic feature of the early church, that it contained as members of the one body, both slaves and masters. And while there were brutal forms of slavery at the time, slavery in Paul's context was not race-based, was not predominantly race-based, and was seldom lifelong. It was more like what we might think of as indentured servitude, where slaves were expected to work solely for one employer, whether that was paid or unpaid, for a set number of years, and then when their debt was paid off, they were free to leave or change employers. Slaves could and often did have their own slaves because there was no such thing as bankruptcy in the first century. And yet, as well, it's important to note that, unfortunately, the work of a slave was often difficult, harsh and demanding, and sadly, because of such work, many indentured slaves might not have actually lived to finish off the work or pay off the debt that they had. And so it's into this context that Paul pens this letter to the Colossian church. If you're wanting to kind of dig a little bit deeper, if that's not enough to sort of give you a framework for this, then can I encourage you to perhaps refer back to Brendo's sermon, where he covered this in a lot more detail in our Exodus series in chapter 21. We don't have a lot of time to get through all of it today, but just to give us a bit of a framework for that perspective. Paul is not writing to condone the mistreatment and abuse of humans, nor to abolish the ancient labour structures of the day. Paul is writing to transform the manner and the attitude of both the Christian slave and the Christian master. Undoubtedly, slaves of Paul's day were faced with difficult circumstances. Futures are far cry from the career prospects or maybe the retirement plans that we might have today. And yet, even in their difficult circumstances, the Lord is seeking to address them and calling them to view their work as service rendered to the Lord. Because Christ is supreme. In a beautiful Christ-like way, this text takes even the most menial of responsibilities, the labour of a slave, and gives it the greatest of dignity by recognising that even, the, even their work is fitting for the Lord. And I guess that's the point. As we seek to apply this text to our lives, Paul is addressing, is addressing the basic principles of labour and one's attitude to their labour, whether as slave, slave or master, Paid or unpaid, voluntary or whatnot. And so I guess at this point, it's probably worth having a bit of a reflection or a reflective question. You know, if Paul is addressing slaves and masters and he's calling them to, uh, you know, render their work to the Lord, whatever the context, 
What is the manner and the attitude by which we conduct our work? How would we describe our current attitude to the work that we do? In these verses, Paul sets forth simple yet profound principle that both ennobles work for those of us that perhaps are in the danger of viewing it as a bit of a chore and redirects the glory of work for those of us that are in danger of perhaps making it about ourselves, making it about our identity. And so if Christ is supreme in all things and we are called to work for him, what does that actually look like? In the text, Paul gives a picture of what it looks like and what it doesn't look like, and that's going to frame up our sort of two points for today's sermon. We're going to look at it from two, uh, two perspectives. Point one, work for the Lord. And then point two, work for man. Okay, so point one, work for the Lord. Work for the Lord is work that is done with sincerity of heart and a fear of the Lord. Just draw your eyes back to verse 22 of the text. We read, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. To work with sincerity of heart is to work with a single-mindedness in the work that we do a focused and unwavering commitment to the work that produces a consistent effort. What is our single-mindedness directed towards? Well, rather than doing work superficially or with mixed motives that are shaped by our fears, our emotions, our attitudes, our selfish ambition, our concerns about what other people think of the work that we do, to work with sincerity of heart is to work with a clear sense that the work we do, whatever it is, is ultimately for the Lord. And so having that mindset in the way in which we go about our work. And as you do go about your work, with that focused, unwavering, committed effort for the Lord, we are to do so with a distinct reverence and respect for him, a fear of him. Not in the sense that we're afraid of him, but a sense or appropriate reverence or awe of his supremacy and his will for our lives and our work. When we fear the Lord, Christ is the ultimate motivation and influential factor in what shapes our attitude and the manner in which we conduct our work. And so having that as our mindset as we go about our everyday work is so important. We are to be fully engaged in the work as whole people, giving our minds, our hearts and our bodies fully to doing the best job possible under the supremacy of Christ. And Paul in this text gives us three reasons why we should actually work with a sincerity of heart and a fear of the Lord. And the first one is because regardless of what respect, recognition or remuneration we receive, or perhaps we don't need it at all. So think of the context of a slave. Regardless of that context, we will receive the inheritance. Verse 24, as Christians, we will receive the inheritance, not a inheritance, not some of an inheritance, but the inheritance, a reward that will never spoil or fade, eternity with our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
And as I said, just weigh this up for a moment. This is written to slaves and masters. Paul is addressing slaves who, by their very nature, had no inheritance, bound by a debt they could not pay, and yet is reminding them that they have and will, in its fullness, receive their reward in Christ Jesus upon his return. What comfort to the worker amongst the difficulty of toil. Secondly, Paul provides another reason why it is that we are called to work with sincerity of heart and a fear of the Lord. Because in verse 24, it is actually the Lord Christ who we serve. Jesus, the one who came to serve and not be served, teaches us that the greatest commandment is to love him and love one another. Love our God and love our neighbour. And that the operating principle for this love is servanthood. Interestingly, it was Martin Luther who penned some of the early thoughts on this idea of work as servitude of others, serving others or being called to work to serve others. In his writing, Luther challenged the secular and sacred divide and empowered all believers to know their work to serve humanity and enjoyed God's full blessing at a time where it was actually believed that a life devoted to full-time ministry offered unique opportunities to complete one's faith and secure one's salvation. He insisted that the farmer shoveling manure in the field or the maid milking the cow pleased God as much as the minister preaching and praying. And then it was John Calvin who actually refined this line of thinking, but under the premise that the work we do contributes to the good of all and not merely the advancement of oneself. Calvin taught that something can only be a calling, and this is really important, if some other party calls you to it, and you do it for their sake and not your own. So when Paul points out that you are serving the Lord Christ in your work, our daily work can only be a calling if it's reconceived as God's assignment to serve him and others. I'll say that again. When Paul points out that we are serving the Lord Christ in our work, our daily work can only be a calling if it's reconceived as God's assignment to serve him and others. Ultimately, as we seek to work as a way of service to God and our neighbour, we are called to reflect the way in which we conduct that work. And so whatever you do, whether slave or free, paid or unpaid, employer or employee, do your work with an attitude of seeking to serve the Lord and others. And then the third reason why we are called to work with sincerity of heart and a fear of the Lord in our work, in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, it is Christ who will ultimately be the judge of our work. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul shifts the addressing, shift, sorry, to addressing the masters, calling them to account for the way in which they treat their slaves. They are to treat their slaves justly and fairly because masters must remember that they have a master in heaven who treats them justly and fairly and that we will all one, all one day be called to account for the way in which we treat others. So how do we work with a sincerity of heart and a fear of the Lord? I guess at this point, probably worth reflecting on this and asking a question. How with my existing abilities, with the current context and the opportunities available to me, can I be of greater service to God and others in the work that I do?
what ways could I grow in my attitude of service and Lord to others? Well, perhaps as you think about it, perhaps in the mundane work like I described in the, in the field, pulling weeds out of the pot plant, it's reminding ourselves that in that work, we're called to serve others and serve the Lord. Perhaps it's when you're receiving praise and accolade for the wonderful work that you've done. You know, you've done something brilliant for your colleagues or for your employer or whatever it is and you're receiving praise and accolade. It's recognising that the work you do is for others and for the Lord. Perhaps you've got a difficult boss and there's challenges with that relationship and it's difficult work. It's reminding yourself that the work you do is for others and for the Lord. Perhaps you're exhausted after a huge day of just wrangling small children, trying to discipline them and train them, support them in their development. It's reminding yourself that the work you do is to serve them and to serve the Lord. Perhaps you're limited in capacity in your work. For whatever reason, it might be illness or misadventure, and you feel it frustrating that you can't use your gifts. Regardless of that context, reminding yourself that the work you get to do is for the Lord. So if that is what it looks like to work for the Lord with sincerity of heart, then what doesn't it look like? What doesn't it look like to work for the Lord? That brings us to point two, working for man. In verse 22 and 23, we learn working for man is takes the supremacy of Christ and redirects the glory to others and then ultimately to ourselves. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, and here it is, not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Paul warns against work for men by way of eye service, so doing a job, uh, doing a good job only when others are looking, or as people pleases, doing the job to impress others so they might think better of the work that you do. He warns against this because when we work for the approval of others, we ultimately make work about ourselves and our own supremacy. One of the greatest jobs that I had uh, as a a uh, uni student, actually, it was my summer job. I worked in a warehouse that distributed ceiling fans. Um, random, I know, but uh, that was the job I had. And it just so happened that I had about four or five of some of my best mates that worked there as well. We all got a job at the same place uh, over the summer. And uh, it was a wonderful place to work. There was, you know, wonderful management. It was a really lovely uh, sort of team feel. It was a small organisation. The officers were above the warehouse and then I worked down as, a, I guess, a storeman in the, uh, in the warehouse with my mates. Um, and to be honest, uh, we had a real knack for working hard when the boss was looking and not working hard when he wasn't. Um, we, uh, you, you know the uh, ceiling fan down rods, the things that hang the ceiling fans to the roof? We worked out if you get enough bubble wrap and you wrap it around the, the down rod, you could make a, an excellent cricket bat. And we worked out as well, if you've got a golf ball and wrapped enough bubble wrap around that, you could make a great cricket ball. And uh, we would spend our days in amongst doing work, uh, playing test mat cricket uh, down, the, uh, down the warehouse um, 
floor. Uh, we would have, there was a table tennis table in the lunchroom, um, and we would spend our days on extended lunch breaks playing Wimbledon-style table tennis um, while the boss wasn't looking. I remember one time, this is particularly bad, um, my mate and I made ourselves refreshing iced chocolates uh, at the staff kitchen, and then we took those down into the warehouse, and then we went down the warehouse, and then like I handed the, and then I climbed up onto the second pallet, and then we made a little cubby house, and then we sat in the cubby house and drank our iced chocolates. Um, and I tell you this not because I'm proud of it. Um, I tell you this is what not to do. Um, the reality is, in that job, um, it was a great job. Like we were treated so well. Um, I worked hard when the boss was looking, and I didn't when he wasn't. That was, that was me working for myself. My actions reflected a deep concern for my own comfort and my own enjoyment. It didn't honour the workplace or the money that I was getting paid or the responsibilities that I had. It was about me. I was only willing to work if it suited me. If the boss was looking, well, it suits me because I want him to keep me employed. So I'll work. When he's not, I'll do what I want. I was working if I was king. In our work, we can so easily be, um, find it so easily to take the supremacy of Christ and redirect the glory to ourselves or to others. And I don't know, in your context, perhaps you've seen it or lived it, but perhaps it looks like an ongoing and aggressive career climbing for personal gain or recognition to prove yourself. Perhaps it looks like people-pleasing to win the approval of others to get the next promotion. Perhaps it looks like cutting corners, making questionable work decisions, or not speaking up when you ought to out of fear of what others might think of you. All smiles to your boss's face, and then behind closed doors complaining about their failure to lead. Perhaps you're more happy to do a job for the supervisor But when the apprentice comes along, you don't even offer your assistance. We're sinful people, and so we are prone to make work about ourselves. And yet only an awe of God is capable of keeping work in its rightful place. And so again, a reflective question for us as we think about our work is, what is one way that perhaps you are prone to work for self? How might you seek to address this or grow in this in your own life? You know, as I, as, I pre, as I studied this text, many thoughts came to mind of my own work context and some of my motivations and motives for working. Paul Tripp in his book, Awe, points out that we tend to be in awe of what we are convinced will give us meaning, purpose, pleasure and satisfaction. Too often we work way too hard trying to get these things from people, situations and the everyday work we do. When in reality, we can only get them from our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Tripp goes on to actually list some examples of what this might look like. John is never home. Jenny, his wife, has gotten used to having dinner alone with the kids and making excuses for John's absence at all the evening activities that she attends by herself. Sharon says she has never been satisfied with any job because she is always able to spot one that appears more exciting or challenging to her. 
Both Sam and Frida work busy jobs and are balancing study on the side. And yet they have little free time to enjoy with their young family in their beautiful home. Gina's been in a significant depression since her firm downsized and she was made redundant. She can barely get out of bed in the morning and says that she feels like her life is over. Mike is the boss, but not the kind of boss that employees love. He is known for being endlessly demanding and seldom encouraging, and his business has suffered from a constant turnover of employees. As you listen to these scenarios, what's at the heart of all of them? Themselves. Where does work by way of eye service, as people pleasers, work that is fueled at a heart level for ourselves? where does that lead us? I think we know the implications of these scenarios and perhaps maybe you've experienced them to different degrees in our own life. I certainly have. And yet in God's kindness, he has given us hope. Christ is so loving, so caring, so considerate, so concerned about our hearts and our minds and our salvation that he commands us not to work for ourselves because he knows how damaging this will be. He calls us to work for him. In his kindness, Christ has provided a better way. Our work is not about ourselves because in Christ's supremacy, he knows that's a flawed way of living. And so out of an abundance of love, he has given us a better way. His way. Culture says that work is fundamentally about you. And yet scripture warns against work such as this. Because when we make work about ourselves, we rob Christ of his rightful supremacy in all that we do. Despite our sinful nature in God's kindness, he gives us a new perspective, a better perspective, a freeing perspective, one where whatever we do, we do it for the Lord. And so verse 23, whatever we do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have provided us with a better way. We are prone to work for ourselves. Our sinful nature, we look out for our own needs, our own wants, our own desires. And yet, in your kindness, Lord, You have been generous in pointing us to a new way. A life that is seeking to serve others and to serve you. And so, Lord, we just pray this morning as we reflect about the work that we do, whether that's paid or unpaid, stimulating or boring and difficult, Lord, help us to remember that you look on at our work with great joy and delight. Lord, you are supreme above all and so help us to work in such a way with a single-mindedness that the work that we do matters and the work that we do is for you, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for this word this morning, for this reminder, for this sense of encouragement. And I pray that this week as we seek to apply this, Lord, you'll go before us in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.